Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cold Case Road Trip here on the Murder Bucket Podcast. If you're new here, or if you have listened from the beginning, let me quickly explain what the Cold Case Road Trip is. Over the course of about 30 episodes, we have been exploring a cold case from all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories. Each week, we cover a cold case in two locations. And tonight, we are on stops 50 and 51, and we will be traveling to the U.S. Virgin Islands and Montana. But as always... Let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. My last week wasn't all that interesting, except for on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday in the morning, we met up with our friend Lindsay and our friend Chris and his nephew Jeremiah at a corn maze over by our house. We, of course, picked out pumpkins. We walked through the corn maze a little bit. We tried out some of the guess, corn-themed activities, such as the corn pit instead of, you know, a sand pit, which my daughter really loved. She actually started crying when we took her out of it. And when we got home, I found probably a handful of corn kernels in her clothes. Let's see, what else did we do? There was a petting zoo where we could feed carrots and celery to the different animals, Our daughter went down a slide, and we tried the little swing set that was there. And then after that, we went to breakfast with Chris and Jeremiah. And then that afternoon, I sang in our church's Saturday service, which I used to sing in the Sunday 8 o'clock service before COVID and before our daughter was born. So it's been about two years now. So I was extremely nervous. But I think it went really well. And like I said, that was honestly the only thing that I did this past week that was interesting enough to talk about. So, let's go ahead and get started with tonight's episode. Stop 50. The U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, obviously you know that the U.S. Virgin Islands is very small, So there is little to no information regarding cold cases. So these are the nine people that I will be featuring in tonight's episode. 44-year-old Penny January and 44-year-old Gerard Nicholas. They were last seen in St. Thomas on May 2nd, 2008. Penny was from Illinois and was visiting Gerard. He took her to Botanay Bay to show her the ocean. 
Neither of them have ever been heard from again. One of Gerard's neighbors reported them missing a few days later. His apartment in East Bordeaux was left intact with nothing out of order. 41-year-old Carol Brady. He was last seen in St. John sometime in November of 2006. He lived in Little Plantation near the Sweet Plantains restaurant at the time of his disappearance. He frequently went for walks in the Coral Bay area and would sometimes hitchhike to Cruise Bay, then take a bus back. Carol normally speaks only when spoken to. He wasn't carrying any money at the time of his disappearance. 43-year-old Knut Joseph and 36-year-old Karen Wetzel. They were last seen in St. Thomas sometime in October of 2008. Knut was born on St. Thomas and Karen was from the United States, but had been living on the island for about a year. They led a transient lifestyle and lived in Knut's car. In the fall of 2008, Karen got a job at the Calypso Cafe in the A.H. Rise Mall in Charlotte. Knut got a job at Quality Foods. The couple vanished only a few days after starting their new jobs. Neither of them have been heard from again. It's not uncharacteristic of Karen to be out of touch with her family, so they were initially unconcerned when they didn't hear from her. They began to worry after Thanksgiving and Christmas had passed without contact, and her father in Texas reported her missing in January of 2009. The police, searching for Karen, got in touch with Knut's brother in February. His brother reported him missing at that time. Foul play is possible in Karen and Knut's cases. In 2009, authorities found a woman's body that they think might be Karen's. The victim, who had been shot in the head, had a necklace that was similar to one Karen wore and had also broken her arm before, just like Karen. The body has not been identified. 48-year-old Lucy Schumann. She was last seen in St. John on September 15, 2019, and was reported missing on September 19th after not returning to her Airbnb. Lucy was from Louisville, Kentucky. On September 20th, the yellow Jeep Wrangler that Lucy had rented was found at a parking lot in the Salt Pond area of Virgin Islands National Park. Her backpack with her identification was found near the edge of a cliff on top of Ram Hill Trail in a remote area of the park. Authorities don't believe she fell from the cliff as most of the area below Ram Head is jagged rocks and not water. If anyone had fallen, their body would have been found. An extensive search of the park turned up no clues of Lucy's whereabouts. 40-year-old Clayton Simmons He was last seen in St. Thomas sometime in 2000. He suffered from mental illness and had lived in a group home, but was asked to leave because he wouldn't follow the rules. He wound up living on the streets and also spent some time in the Eldra Schulterbrandt Living Facility, a long-term care home for the mentally ill. He kept in touch with his family occasionally. 27-year-old Sandra Laplace she was last seen in Hole Bay on May 1, 1974. 
She left her home after telling her husband she could not manage their two young children. Her car was found abandoned by the road just a short distance from her home. The purse and keys were missing and there were no indications of foul play. Sandra was reportedly carrying a substantial amount of cash at the time of her disappearance, enough to leave the Virgin Islands. But checks at the local airport turned up no one who had seen her. The circumstances of her disappearance are unclear. The missing persons file for Sandra was accidentally destroyed after she disappeared. A new report was made. Sandra's family believes she left on her own accord because she missed her old life back in New York. 85-year-old Johan Nunez. He flew to the Rosen Airport in the Virgin Islands on August 2, 2002 arriving at around 1 p.m. He was last seen on August 19th on Campo Rico Beach. If you have any information in regards to any of these disappearances, you are encouraged to contact the Virgin Island Police Department. Before we head into Stop 51, please take a moment to listen to a word from our sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. With Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're facing the same problem as me. Finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your spouse, your nephew, or to bring to a work holiday party. There are so many things out there to choose from. But if you want to give something unique, I have the solution. It's called Unidragon. Expertly crafted wooden puzzles. I own the Charming Owl Puzzle. When it first arrived, I was completely blown away. Unidragon tells you that each piece has its own unique shape, and they aren't wrong. They mention the incredibly vibrant colors of each puzzle, and it will amaze you when you see one in person. The reasons why so many people love Unidragon puzzles is because it's interesting for adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box, and new puzzles are released every month. Unidragon has given Murder Bucket listeners their very own promo code. When you go to unidragon.com and enter promo code BUCKET, you will receive 10% off. So get your shopping list done early this year by visiting unidragon.com and selecting one of their gorgeous puzzles. And we're back. Stop 51. Montana. 58-year-old Father John Kerrigan had only resided over the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Ronan, Montana for four days when he disappeared on July 20, 1984. The evening before, he went to Denault's Bakery on 4th Avenue after going for a jog. No one heard from him again. He was supposed to deliver his first sermon at the 5.30 a.m. Mass the next morning. Over a 100 parishioners waited eagerly to greet their new priest, but he never showed up. Sacred Heart Parish had gone without its own priest since April, and they were excited. After about 15 minutes, many people became increasingly impatient and left. Several grew concerned and called the rectory where he lived, but no one answered. 
When Father John missed the Sunday morning Mass, their concern deepened. On Monday, July 23rd, he was declared missing. That next Sunday, July 29th, a woman who was setting up a roadside fruit stand on Highway 35 found Father John's shoes, shirt, and windbreaker jacket. His shirt was stained with his blood, and there was about $100 in his pocket. Along with his clothes, a blood-stained and deformed coat hanger was also found. A week after his disappearance, his brown Chevrolet Impala was found seven miles from the church just outside Polson. Police noticed that the vehicle had been wiped clean of fingerprints. They made note that there was a copious amount of blood in the interior and trunk. During the search of the trunk, police found a pillow, shovel, and his wallet. It was filled with well over $1,000. The keys to the vehicle were found about 30 yards away. When police interviewed the bakery owner and several of the customers that were there that evening, they stated that Father John, even though he appeared to be physically fit, his nature didn't seem like he could harm anyone. He told a few of the customers that he was planning on attending a funeral and wedding in Plains the next day. Chief Investigator Paul Choma told the Associated Press that he was surprised at the reluctance of many people to provide information that he had to learn from other sources. Father John was born on January 10, 1926, in Butte. He attended St. Joseph Grade School and Central High School before he moved to Seattle, Washington, to attend St. Edward's Seminary. He was ordained in Butte and began his work in ministry at St. Patrick's Church in 1954. Since starting his ministry, he had shuffled around to 13 different parishes. His assignments were St. Patrick Parish in Butte, St. Francis Parish in Hamilton, St. Lawrence Parish in Walkerville, St. Rose Parish in Dillon, St. Anne Parish in Butte, Little Flower Parish in Browning, Holy Rosary Parish in Bozeman, St. Michael Parish in Drummond, St. Bartholomew Parish in White Sulphur Springs, St. Joseph Parish in Choteau, and St. James Parish in Plains. In 1983, Father John spent three months at a retreat center in Hemis Springs, New Mexico. This retreat center was designed for priests who were experiencing personal difficulties that included substance abuse, depression, and sexual misconduct. Chief Investigator Choma contacted New Mexico authorities after he learned of another Catholic priest who was murdered two years prior to Father John's disappearance. On the evening of August 7, 1982, Father Rinaldo Rivera answered a call from a man who was seeking the last rites of a loved one. Three days later, his body was found riddled with bullets on a dirt road outside Santa Fe. His sacrament bag, wallet, and glasses were never found. His car was found at a rest stop. In both cases, the victim's vehicles were wiped clean of fingerprints and abandoned. 
The police believe that the killer in both wanted people to know that they killed a priest and presented the evidence in plain sight. In GreatFallsTribune.com, Sheriff Joe Geldrich is quoted stating, We developed some suspects, but we never really had enough to wrap it up with. The names of those suspects were never released to the public. In 2011, two groups of victims sued the Catholic Diocese of Helena. They stated that between the 1940s and the 1970s, they were sexually abused at the hands of Jesuit priests and Ursuline sisters at the St. Ignatius Mission and the Ursuline Academy. Twelve priests were implicated as well as 21 nuns, one of which was Father John. Because of the statute of limitations and the fact that many of the alleged abusers had died, no charges were brought against anyone. As part of a settlement reached with the victims, however, the church published a list of the alleged perpetrators in 2015. The list had approximately 100 church employees on it. The lawsuit, which involved hundreds of abused claims, was settled for over $20 million, and it drove the diocese into bankruptcy. This statement is taken directly from dioceshelena.org. January 31, 2014 The Diocese of Helena has taken a major step toward bringing resolution to 362 claims of abuse of minors by diocesan priests, religious community priests, women religious, and lay workers who have served in the diocese primarily between 30 and 60 years ago. On Friday, January 31, 2014, the diocese will be filing a Chapter 11 reorganization case before the United States Bankruptcy Court for the District of Montana to complete pre-bankruptcy mediation negotiations with known abuse survivors and the diocese liability insurance carriers. The diocese chose a pastoral mode and entered in a confidential mediation process. The mediation resulted in the general parameters of proposed settlements with the victims and the insurance carriers. The details of written agreements are still being worked on by the parties. Under the supervision and ultimate approval of the bankruptcy court, $15 million would be available to compensate the currently identified victims with additional settlement funds for other and unknown victims. The process of obtaining bankruptcy court approval included the opportunity for victims and creditors to vote on the proposed settlement. The diocese expects that its reorganization will be expedited by the pre-bankruptcy negotiations with all of the affected parties. On behalf of the entire Diocese of Helena, I express my profound sorrow and sincere apologies to anyone who was abused by a priest a sister, or a lay church worker, said Helena Bishop George Leo Thomas. No child should experience harm from anyone who serves in the church. The diocese has abuse prevention programs in place, including screening and training for employees, volunteers, priests, and seminarians. The diocese has a board to review claims of abuse 
whose members include a mother, a priest, a deputy prosecutor, a retired law enforcement officer, social workers, and a counselor. Bishop Thomas indicated, I want to assure you that none of those who have been credibly accused remain active in ministry at this time. In fact, the majority of those accused have died. The bishop also noted that the diocese has taken responsibility in this matter for claims involving members of religious communities who have served here. Efforts to include the Ursuline sisters in the proposed settlements were inconclusive and they are not participating in the proposed resolution of this litigation. The majority of the proposed settlement for known and unknown victims will be funded by the diocesan insurance carriers. It is anticipated that the diocese will need to provide at least $2.5 million to fund claims and the costs associated with the court proceedings. Additionally, the diocese has been experiencing a tenuous financial condition which existed prior to and is not related to the litigation. This condition has resulted in reduction in staff and services provided by the diocese as well as putting many parish building projects on hold. Bishop Thomas indicated, While we may be a poorer church, we remain unwaveringly committed to promoting the good news of Jesus Christ. Once the reorganization proceedings conclude, we will be able to plan confidently for future ministry for the people of the Church of the Diocese of Helena. If you would like to see the list of accused personnel, you can visit dioceshelena.org and scroll all the way to the bottom, and it is under the other links. At the time of his disappearance, Father John Kerrigan was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, red shorts, and sneakers. If you have any information in the disappearance of Father John Kerrigan, you were encouraged to contact the Lake County Sheriff's Office. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Anomalous Fascination Podcast. Hello, friends. Take a dive into the unknown with the Anomalous Fascination Podcast a new podcast where I research and discuss some of the most incredible and unexplainable phenomena, people, and historical events in human history. Episodes are packed full of incredible stories, theories, and mysteries, all in short, family-friendly, and easily digestible format. Prepare to be blown away by the mysteries of the universe, or, at very least, you'll be a lot more interesting at parties. To hop in, search Anomalous Fascination on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app of your choice. And don't forget to follow the show at AnomalyPod on Twitter. Let's take a stroll, shall we? Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket. Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.